will be able to wander along the boulevard Saint-Germain. That's actually it. With an Anita With a pack Bro- of Goulois on the with go. With a Goulois and an Anita Brookness sticking out my pocket. A book, not Anita herself. Yeah. That would be peculiar. Um, <laughs> uh, was she cremated or not? I don't know. <laughs> she was. Yeah. I don't know how I know that, but I do know that anyway. <laughs> you know that she was cremated. I do. I, 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 when, I, when I get into an, a very writer, I really get into a volume of... Um, yeah. Were they embalmed or stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'd like to find out. Away we go. Are we? Ooh, ooh, are we? <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that blows the dust off those old tomes at the back of the bookshelf. Once more, we're gathered around the kitchen table of the Scandi-styled Islington office of our sponsors <laughs> Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to make great books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today is Travis Elbra. Travis has written books and films about London, London buses, the London Bridge, LP Records, the Seaside, <laughs> Municipal Parks. Uh, in fact, you've written two books this year, haven't you? You've, you've published two books this year, A Walk in the Park, which I interviewed you about, a uh, thing, and also An Atlas of Improbable Places. Indeed, expanding the horizons from the London bus-based <laughs> bridge. Uh, Your London obsession. Stuff. Exactly, right. Yeah. Capital punishment, as it were. So. <laughs> and Oh, capital punishment, yes. Mm. And um, you, Travis Elbra, with your London obsession, have chosen a book for us today called A State of Denmark by one of the great London writers, and, I suppose. And the figures, last, I suppose. And figures, I suppose, yeah. yeah. The last Legend. 50, 60 years, Derek Raymond. Robin Cook. Robin Cook. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get on to that. Yeah. I mean, this was published, I'm presuming, as a Robin Cook. It was, originally. It was, yeah. 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 It was published it was in 1970. His, his kind of, you know, road to Damascus. I'm going to reinvite myself as, a, as, a, as the great exponent of, of English noir. Uh, but we should also issue a warning to you, if you're listening to this after Christmas, looking back at the historic year 2016, with all the joys that it's brought to us all, uh, <laughs> this, this is this is quite this is a, a cheery ending. This exactly, is quite yeah. a bleak book about quite a topical subject. So we'll we'll come on to that in a, in a minute. <laughs> is that I, sort of yes, kind of warning. Yeah. If you're feeling at all delicate or slightly kind of troubled about the future, <laughs> this book is this book this book is not going to help. Uh, but uh, before, even though it was written in 1970, so it's, it's a good. warning from history. Yeah, yes. exactly. um, before we, before we get on to that. John, what have, you, what been have you been reading this week? Uh, well, look, I thought, given that we were going to do something noir, 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 yeah. uh, as a, I thought I would... A book that I've been enjoying a lot, and I have to say a lot this year. I'm not really a inveterate reader of new cookbooks. I find, you know, like most people, there kind of are just too many of them, and most of them are sort of form over content, uh, style over substance. But there's one that I've really enjoyed this year by Oliver Rowe called Food for All Seasons. And, of course, it's that hoariest of old chestnuts now, the seasonal cookbook. Yes. But actually, why I like it is that it is lightly, as they say, illustrated. Some really, It's a beautiful bit of design. It no, it's, who is it? Is it Faber? Uh, it's Faber. Yes, Faber. Yeah. It's a beautiful bit of a design, designed by Here Design, Kaz Hildebrand's yeah. team, who did Letters of Note. It's, it's very, for a cookbook, Really, really, really well. It's like written. an actual book. I can see it from here. So it's, it's basically like there's, no, there's no photography and it's mostly text, right? And, and Oliver is really interesting. He uh, is a chef. He trained at the River Cafe and he had a restaurant. In fact, he had two restaurants, a restaurant and a cafe called Constant, which was named after his 
I'm going to have to forget which, but I think it was his grandfather. It was in King's Cross, and it was he tried to source as much of his, his, his ingredients as he could within the M25 and threaded throughout the seasonal uh, recipes is the story of uh, how that restaurant was opened and then eventually closed. I don't know why I want elegiac in my cookbook, but there is a sort of... (laughs) And it's very, very frank. It's lots of good stories about running a a restaurant. But the stuff that that I enjoy is just he's really, really good at, you know, if you want to know how to cook Japanese knotweed, for example, and (laughs) and let's be honest, who of us has not looked at Japanese (laughs) knotweed and wondered whether there isn't something more useful that we can do than calling the council and getting them to incinerate it with paraffin then there are there are ways of cooking it in this in this book such as <laughs> well, I was ah sorry <laughs> sorry I, I, as as i asked steamed, you the question steamed and steamed in with a little um, a little bit of steamed in with ioli i think is it was, was Isn't one it of the poisonous? no not at all poisonous i'm i'm trying to find it wild garlic ioli that's another thing that i uh, i saw there was a recipe which i thought ms jean reese would approve of which was cherries poached in perno. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that looked that looked oh. very nice. Is that one of those recipes like poached cherries in, cher- in perno? Those throwaway <laughs> cherries. Let me. I'm going to nail that. I'm going to nail the. I'm going to nail that. So, what, what is this, Listen to this. This is quite good. You know, for a cookbook. This just this is the this is the opening of the November creeps. Dark comes early and melancholy catches up with us. Desolate and vagrant cold settles in like a squatter, unwanted and unwelcome. Undercover, winter slides near, etching itself on the landscape, a cloud passing the sun. Bright days punctuate the gloom to deceive us, making us believe that all is crisp and well, but all the while the leaf mould thickens, slowly rotting down in the edges of the garden, slippery on flagstones and harbouring decay. I like the look and feel in the mouth of the word November, and have always felt it should be held in respect. It ushers in the winter, a stark transitional month, the business end of autumn, The key events in November, Bonfire Night and Remembrance Day, set a maudlin tone. In Mexico, the second is the Day of the Dead, so we're not alone in feeling its morbidity. I mean, it's quite good in the cookbook, isn't it? One is fun, it ain't. (laughs) (laughs) What does it say for January? January, Because most people listening Ah, to this are going to listen in January, aren't they? In January, well pointed out there, Andy. Um, Let's look. January, I think, is... um, Yeah, January's good. What have we got here that we've got? um, Cocktails. (laughs) <laughs> Excellent, <laughs> of course. Spirits, beer, parsnips, Jerusalem artichokes, Seville oranges, of course. Ma- marmalade making mat is ah, not in yes. approval. Blood oranges, that. beetroot, chocolate, Somerset brandy, Swede, haggis, persimmons, and cauliflower. So it's quite quite mm. eclectic. Um, I'm just going to check on. Well, yeah, he's got some very good. Um, he has a really good Negroni recipe in here. Uh, one we sourced with an independent local gin. Good, good on Bloody Marys. It's just, I just find it's one of those things, it, if, if one is, is the sort of person who has books piled next to one's toilet. <laughs> as, as, what? What? As, as I do. Here's the Japanese botweed. It's in March. I'm going to find, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail this now. I feel bad. That do you think that this kind of trend or, or liking for... Um books like this that go through the seasons came from kind of Nigel Slater and the, and the Kitchen Diaries or was it before I think that? that to be honest to go back to there was Jane Grigson did things yeah, like this yeah and, and there's a book by Sybil Kapoor called uh, Seasonal I mean you, right. that which is which is at least 20 years old I mean I think it's been I mean to be honest any good chef has always cooked seasonally yeah, because yeah. You, you, you use the best produce and the stuff in here I like like you know if you're going to eat herring eat herring now when it's fat and 
at its best, you know. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff. I just think it's, what I like about it is it's just a little bit more, he goes a little bit further and he's got interesting, um, he's got interesting recipes for things that, you know, a lot of seasonal cook cookbooks, as it were, your, your Jamie or, or even your Nigella don't have. So it's, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, you know, it's well written and it's, it's, it's um, slightly melancholy, <laughs> which I, I find perhaps as I get older. Well, maybe it's the gout, the gout, which has been, you know, I've been obviously that I've been looking, I've been off the booze and I've been looking, uh, searching I, but you know backwards what? and forwards for interesting things to do. That, are, that if if I walked into a shop and I saw a cook, a nicely produced cookbook on a table, and there was a quote on the front that said "well written and slightly melancholy," <laughs> I'd buy that. <laughs> that's, that's fine. It, it is possibly that it's just maybe made for you and me. I, I think, think that so. Yeah, the, that might be the thing. Past the knotweed, um, <laughs> cooking with no friends. <laughs> <laughs> One is inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> while, while you're, uh, perhaps, perhaps we should, um, perhaps we should. Shall I move on to what I've been reading? Yeah. Or you read? Well, I try and find <laughs> the, the, the fucking killer passage on the, uh, on the Japanese knotweed. What, Andy, have you been reading this week, John? I have been reading a brilliant uh, collection of short stories, which was suggested to me by our former guest, uh, Lissa Evans. And right. then when I said that I was reading it on Twitter, our former guest, Lloyd Shepard, popped up and said, that is the book That's that I wanted to do if I hadn't done The Riddle of the Sands. <laughs> to which you said. <laughs> <laughs> to which I said nothing, John, <laughs> other than, than, was it good, Lord? <laughs> Dang but, um, It's called Good Evening, Mrs. Craven, by a writer called Molly Panterdowns. Published by Persephone. She must have got had a hellish school shot. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, she, she wrote for the New Yorker for 50 years. Really? For 50 years, she filed some incredible number of pieces. And she's most famous in the States for writing for, I'm going to say 40 years or something, The Letter from London. That was her... Uh, so sort of like a Alistair Cook kind in of reverse. Yes. In reverse. Yeah, and, yeah. and she wrote that all the way through the war years and post-war and into the 1980s. She goes as far as the 1980s, I think. But she had an exclusivity deal with The New Yorker, which meant that she was only published in The New Yorker, was rarely published in British magazines, with the result that she's extremely well-known in the States for writing about Britain, but very little known over here. And Good Evening, Mrs. Craven is a book of short stories that she wrote for The New Yorker. And anyone who listens to this podcast regularly will know people who wrote short stories for The New Yorker feature here a lot. <laughs> she wrote stories for The New Yorker which are similar in some ways to Sylvia Townsend Warner or Elizabeth Taylor. There are 20 in this collection and they have been edited and arranged chronologically with the effect that, although you can dip into it as a book of short stories, if you read it from cover to cover, it's like reading a brilliant sort of episodic novel about the story of the home front during the Second World War. God, how brilliant. And it was republished by Persephone in 1999, okay. since which time it has sold steadily. And I'm just going to read you the opening of a, one of the late stories called The Danger, which will give you a flavour of it. It's sort of that brilliant mixture of stoicism and humour. So it's, this is The Danger, first published 8th of July 1944. Mrs Dudley's evacuees had gone at last, 
and an almost supernatural hush had seemed to descend upon the house and garden the moment they left. As joyfully as cats plunging back into a dustbin, they had returned to London, without expressing gratitude or regret, without giving a shadow of a sign that four years of living in the midst of what Mrs Dudley called beauty, with a capital B, had made the slightest impression on them. The Rudds had remained sturdily impervious to beauty right up to the last. On a morning when Mrs Dudley's magnolias were bursting wide in the sunshine and patches of frosty alpine blues and yellows were beginning to dapple the rockery, where Mr Dudley's terrible old gardening hat could be seen slowly moving, Mrs Rudd had stood gazing out of the window with an eye only too clearly nostalgic for a good Woolworths. (laughs) Ever so quiet, isn't it, she had said staring contemptuously at a gentian. Might be miles and miles from everything, really, instead of only ten minutes' walk from the village. That's what we like about the house, Mrs Dudley had replied. (laughs) To which Mrs Rudd had said forgivingly, well, everyone to his taste, of course, and flung the lipstick stub of her cigarette out into Beauty's face before getting on with her lackadaisical pushing of a mop over the hall parquet. It had been part of the agreement when the Rudds arrived that Mrs Rudd, besides keeping their own quarters clean, should assist about the house. Both these clauses, Mrs Dudley had speedily discovered, were mere light-hearted figures of speech, for Mrs Rudd was a slut. The words seemed to have been invented for her. Now that the Rudds had gone, now that the beautiful, incredible silence had settled down over a house empty of strangers again, the full horror of Mrs Rudd could be relished, like the details of an appalling illness mercifully passed. I mean, it, that is it's brilliant. so beautifully yeah. written. And so the other thing to say about this book, Good Evening, Mrs Craven, The Wartime Stories of Molly Panther Downs, is that I bought it from the Persephone Bookshop in Lamb's Conduit Street here in London, where I had never been before. Have you ever been there? Yeah, it's what, so to the streets. Isn't it great? <laughs> well, I, I've never been to the Persephone Bookshop before, <laughs> and I absolutely loved it. As I said on Twitter, it's like the happiest shopping experience I've had for years. It's great. I mean, Everyone in there is, first of all, utterly charming. Yeah. They're very interested in what they sell. And because we, I speak, we, everyone around the, gathered around this table has at one point or another been a bookseller, I believe. You know, they're so on top of the stock <laughs> Not because mad, they have 120 <laughs> books yeah. that they need to know about mm. and, like, a few more that they sell on top of that. And I had a chat with Persephone was founded by Nicola Bowman. Nicola Bowman was sitting in the shop. Isn't that great? Talking to... Um, a representative of a certain high street book chain about a certain missing invoice, which uh, I, I, I listened, I introduced myself to Nicola, uh, and I said, oh, the thing is, I was listening to that conversation, having thought many years ago I would have been the person on the other side of the line <laughs> receiving that justifiably uh, indignant phone call. Um, but it made me think about how what a brilliant exercise Persephone is yeah. as a publisher Wonderful. to have carved out a niche and rediscovered these writers like Dorothy Whipple and Margarita Lasky and Winifred Watson uh, Betty Miller no relation uh, well, they've, done, they've done it they've, well, they've, they've produced beautiful books they've got great taste and they've done it you know they haven't just sort of flounced in and flounced out like a lot of publishing initiatives sort of start mm. with a they've really done it seriously and they I mean, I think it takes a long time to build a, to, to build a kind of a reputation for it. I mean, they, they obviously, when they launched, they, Nicola's incredibly well-connected, and they've, so they got a lot of, there was a lot of publicity at the time, but actually they've totally delivered on it. I mean, I think they're, I, think they're inc- I just think they're admirable. I know, you know, you, it's that thing, isn't it? Like, like I hoped back in the day, 
you could have said about Harvel. You know, you may not have loved every book that they published, but you could see that every book that was being published was yeah. was worth publishing and and had a and it was that thing we were talking about the other week where it's like maybe it's me if if I'm not enjoying this book and it's a, it's published by Persephone maybe it's it's yeah, maybe yeah, it's yeah. my problem yeah, yeah. Uh, well I and I, that's that's as that's as good as you can get for an imprint isn't it well I can't believe that this is one of those this is probably one of my favourite books that I've read this year and I can't believe having read it that it won't come up at some point in the year ahead in just in terms of I can totally see another potential guest recommending it and we'll get to talk about it at length um, I th- John I think you've loved, you haven't I, read it have you? I haven't read it no and even that little snippet there is, is just make, and it's again I think the, it's that rich seam of storytelling that's come out of the middle years of last century often by women that we yeah. again and again <laughs> keep coming up on this podcast not today, I yeah. <laughs> a, a different kind of a different scene. But this is, I mean, I'm so yeah. I think it would. Be, it sounds like a. It, it, to me, I know it's a bit early for us to say it's, it sounds like a, a backlisted kind of book, but that's what it sounds like to me. Can I just? Can I just? Um, before we go on to Derek Raymond, can I just? Uh, can I just kill the Japanese knotweed? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Japanese knotweed, interestingly, as they say, Japanese knotweed rhubarb is from the same family as. Uh, fallopia japonica or Japanese knotweed which can be cooked in almost in the same way as rhubarb Oh, note okay. to Matt in the past I've made some pretty nice jams and compots with it the flavour is less delicate and the texture isn't as refined but whereas <laughs> rhubarb is a welcome addition to any garden Japanese knotweed is so difficult to get rid of and so pervasive it's illegal to dispose of it in, a norm, in normal garden waste it's also flagged up on house surveys and has a negative impact on property value the more of it we eat, the better. My bit of um, my bit of Japanese knotweed law is the reason it's so is it's so prevalent. Is it won the Royal Horticultural Society's gold medal in 1864? No, as the most fabulous plant. It was had beautiful white blossoms and it grew really quickly and it was architectural and structurally really useful and so there were clippings all over, going at you know kind of black market clippings going all over the right, country. Right, right. Once again, you know, uh, our imperfect understanding of the natural world. (laughs) Time now for an advert. Talking of the natural world and 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 uh, tending to talking, one, tending talking one to of one's... something that 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 seems like a good idea at first that grows like wildfire that then becomes very unwelcome. Yes, Let's tending talk one's about vineyard. Derek Roman's fascist dystopia, <laughs> <laughs> the state of Denmark. Um, Travis, yes, you. <laughs> what the hell were you thinking, you, Travis? You you come here. <laughs> you chose this book. I did, and I found a thing. It, this book is called The State of Denmark by uh, Derek Raymond. It was written in the 1960s. Late, well, late, late 60s, 60s it, yeah. published 1970. Yeah. Uh, it imagines Britain in 1980, I think I'm right in saying. But it, it imagines basically a dystopian Britain under the boot heel of a relatively avuncular and media-friendly fascist dictator. A and we pop- felt it was very 2016, didn't we? But the key is, it's a populist who kind of moves sideways into yeah. fascism. Starts but, but, out... In that sort of in paternalistic, that, kind of benign yeah. idea of, of and then just slightly forgets to hold any more elections. 
But I, I found well, the thing I wanted to say is to tie into what we were saying at the at the beginning about issuing the public warning about this is that you you recommended this book to our former guest Rachel Cook, who's who wrote about it in her shelf life column in the Observer, and she said perfectly accurately. I can't in all honesty recommend it if you are desperately seeking to escape current events. But if you want to read something that seems now to have been chillingly prescient, this is just the thing. Yeah. When did you first encounter this book? Can you remember? I encountered it, this particular one via Cathy Unsworth, who, who knew, De- uh, knew Derek Robin uh, very well. Yeah. Uh, and she did an event about it, uh, about maybe about seven or so years ago, at Bishopsgate Institute. Um, and for some reason or other, she picked this particular book and was, and was talking about it. I, and I sort of bought it immediately after that and, and read it very rapidly then. But it's always kind of stayed with me. And, and with the, the uh, Brexit uh, vote, shall we say, yeah. uh, somehow or other it, it just popped back into my head. So I kind of pulled it off the shelf and, and reread it. And what did you think coming back to it now? Did you think... This is the thing about the thing about Derek Raymond in, in lots of respects. Is he's actually a, v- a very contemporary novel in the sense that all of his books are grounded in his own actualities, his own time and mm. place. He himself worked uh, or ran a kind of a, a vineyard in Tuscany. So this is based on kind of some of his. Yeah, own, he spent his most of the sixties in. He yeah. kind of went bush and, and went so. exactly. And, and, and that, what, that was one of the things I, having read a couple of the other the Factory series, mm. his great noir series. It, it, I guess the sensibilities are linked, but it's very different. And I, a, I didn't know he'd written this, and I certainly didn't know that quite a big chunk of this book is is set in in Italy. In yeah, definitely. And I think that's uh, that's actually quite important because, about the idea about fascism as well. The localities yeah. are really deep in it. I mean, the book is it's divided into two halves. You have um, in the first half. I mean, it's. A character called Richard Watt, who's the, who's the sort of main narrator figure of the book, who is an ex-journalist who has wrote about politics and has been blacklisted essentially by this new uh, jobbling government, this, this government of, of this benign dictatorship. Um, and so he, because he can't work as a journalist anymore, he sort of drifts to Italy with his his, his partner, uh, Magna Carson. They're not married and he is fearful about the future to the extent where she wants them to have a child and he refuses to, uh, to kind of accede to that. So right at the beginning of the book, there's a sense of something ominous in the future. And really, the first half of the book is, is about their well, life in I, Tuscany. Shall I just read? Let me read the blurb on the back of this, of this mm. copy because, because um, you're right, it's a book of two halves. That first half is set in Tuscany and is very much the sort of existential struggle of the Derek Raymond figure to make sense of his life there, yeah. right, in relation yeah, yeah. to his life in Britain. Anyway, let me re- this is what it says on the back of the most recent uh, so edition. So Serpent's Tale reissued in 2007, I think, didn't they? Yeah, and a bit, um, I've got one here from 94 oh, so, so they put out in Mask Noir, but I think this was the first time it had been republished since, since 1970. Since okay, cool. Um, and it would have been published under his original name, which is uh, Robin Cook. Um, and indeed, he was still published as Robin Cook in France. Did you know that? That really? the Derek Raymond books were published as Robin Cook mm. in France, and he was He's very popular in France. France. Yeah, yeah, Chevalier de, de Honor. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is the blurb. Here we go. It is the 1960s. England has become a dictatorship governed by a sly, ruthless policy. That's actually wrong, isn't it? It's the 1980s, not the 1960s. Well, it's, it's amorphous, the time, really. Well, no, but, ah, yeah, well, you say yeah. that. There's a, there's a giveaway at one point where he <laughs> says it, he, he dates it as 15 years after X. Right, 1980, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Okay. Anyway, so yeah. it is the 1960s. Yeah. Sick. 
England has become a dictatorship governed by a sly, ruthless politician called Jobling. All non-whites have been deported. The English Times is the only newspaper, and people live in dread of nightly curfews and secret police. Richard Watt used all his journalistic talents to expose Jobling before he came to power. Now in exile in a farmhouse amid the cruel heat of the Italian countryside, Watt cultivates his vineyards. His remote rural idyll is shattered by the arrival of a government emissary from London. Derek Raymond's skill is to make all too plausible the transition from complacent democracy to dictatorship in a country preoccupied by consumerism and susceptible to media spin. Hmm. <laughs> First published in 1970, Raymond's brilliant satire is as dark and frightening as ever. That's quite a good blurb, I think. Yeah, pretty good. I think mm, I get the, I get the yep. marks for that. It's interesting that it's satire, satire. I don't know. Is it satire? I, I think it's a I, bit. I think. I think it's. He's engaging. I mean, it, it's in that. It's in a clear tradition of which, obviously, 1984 is. Yeah, it's a dystopian. I mean, he, he actually. I mean, uh, Robbie Cook, aka Derek Raymond, you know, like Orwell went went to Eton and actually wrote quite enthusiastically about the fact that both he and uh, and Orwell hated Eton. With a kind of with a kind of particular venom, and I think it certainly venerated Orwell in, in that respect. I, I mean, it's dystopian certainly, but I think it's it's often like lots of as I said, the idea of him being a contemporary writer is that he is responding in part to both the, the situation in the world. I this is the era of kind of Enoch Powell um, and you know, the Rivers of Blood speeches. You have. The, emergence of the National Front in, in Britain, which he clearly, by this time, because he was living abroad, would have, would have only really encountered via newspaper reports. So there's an element where he's getting some of that information while removed. I think the other key element about this book, which relates to the earlier Robin Cook novels and his own rather rackety existence as a, uh, an enabler, shall we say, of gangland London, <laughs> is that he, a, yeah, had, had moved, he had moved abroad for reasons of health, shall we, shall we say, yeah. to, uh, to remove himself from certain people and certain situations. So the idea of this character, Richard Watt, being in Italy and suddenly this emissary from London arriving and, and the second half of the book, mm. without giving too much away, is about you know, the process of, of how he ends up embroiled in the dictatorship, I think has a huge grain of truth about it, about probably his own state of mind, about the idea of living slightly exile. in fear and in exile, yeah, yeah. Well, and Robin, who might come and get you. Robin Cook, as well, was... We've talked about um, the book, Kieran's Pym book, Jumping Jack Flash, on this podcast, about David Litvinoff, and mm. clearly... Robin Cook moved exactly yeah, moved in yeah. those circles, mm. right? Moved in the kind of Soho craze, Litvinoff, Lucian Freud, colony rooms, yeah. falling out, in, out of pubs and into razor blades, yeah. kind yeah. of yeah. Uh, yeah. existence. Yeah, I mean it's the, the golden age of boho Soho. <laughs> I mean, he he describes there are two pivotal points in in his writing career. The first, he says, is, I mean, he goes to Spain for part of the a part of. It's actually one. I mean, it originally wants to be a poet. Uh, he has ambitions to be a be a poet, and then he comes back to uh, to London from from America, I think, in 1960, that's right. yeah. and that's when he starts knocking about with gangsters, and and it's a period where somehow the gangland and the aristocracy sort of meet in this sort of clubland culture and he's a, a sort of a front for various fraudulent campaigns and through that process and he sort of absorbs working with gangsters and, and their dialect and their speech 
And he writes his, his first novel, which is A Crust on Its Uppers. Ah, um, I, just wanna, I just wanna talk about A Crust on Its Uppers. So I read The Crust on Its Uppers basically yesterday and the day before. And I wanted to read it for a while because when Jonathan Green came in yeah. uh, to do Absolute Beginners with us, he raved about it to us and to me. It was really peculiar reading it because actually it's like, a, as I said to you, Travis, it's like the evil twin of Absolute Beginners. Completely. Well, at least that's how yeah. it starts. It's, it's, it yeah, has yeah. this weird... That's a genius way of describing it. Mm. I have to say, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, read it before. I'd always wanted to read it. Yeah. And I, I read Did you it. read it as well? Yeah. It's it good, isn't it? Really, really <laughs> good. I, liked it rather more than I liked State well, of Denmark. Well, let's say yeah. it. I agree. So did I. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think State of Denmark is, an, is a really interesting book. I don't think it's a successful... I don't think it quite, well, we, quite we'll, kind of ha- hangs we'll, together. Re- we'll talk about we'll talk State about of Denmark in a, in a minute. But there's great things in it. Mm. But the fascinating thing about, as you were saying, Travis, is that the crust on its uppers is published the same year as A Clockwork Orange. It is, yeah. So and it's a bit it, like Absolute Beginners, but it also has this incredible yeah. slang kind of, yeah. kind of... John, have you got a little bit from the beginning of the crust on its uppers just to give people a uh, yeah i mean you could almost you can almost read the forward as well because it's just so, it's so good let's i'll just read from the beginning just read the beginning because yeah, it's do. great <coughs> trying to get the voice right for, for i must posh, warn you i must warn you that everything that follows emanates from the following figure sacked from the most super public school in the country at the age of 16 puzzled sacked from crammer the following year with clap caught from the greek maid still puzzled Joined the army because still too green to knock. Glowing career at Mons, blinded by the toothpaste smile reflected from my boots at adjutant's parade. Certainly not. Latrine's corporal, still puzzled. Illegitimate child in Weymouth, now about nine, one of the few things that made sense in those days because the punishment fitted the crime. Daisy was a right old boiler. Demobbed with the following report. Officer potential, nil. NCO potential, nil. <laughs> CO's comment, a very poor soldier indeed, with a nice smile. <laughs> what next? Oxford and turn over a new leaf? No, no, Morrie. I was beginning to learn. To the north, full of demon energy. To London, a proper ice cream to look at. Only I assure you, I'm all about trout. Age 28, with a hard apprenticeship behind me since those army days. Two years in Spain, flogging hot tape recorders. A year in France, busy vanishing. I lived on the left bank, subsisting on £10 as my mother sent me in Illustrated London Newses, taking civilization at the Sorbonne and penicillin for clap, living all that year like a sort of Lucifer among the scabs and crabs with a record player roaring out skiffle and trad jazz on the end of the bed. I think that's probably... Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's so good. I mean, that, is a, that about... is a riff, right? That, he, yeah, 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 and, yeah. And, and that's... I just think in that kind of... And that is his life as well. Yeah. Condensed within that. <laughs> well, well, we should just... We've got yeah. a clip bit of here. Gene, almost a bit Gene Reesey as well. Yeah, yeah. We, just... We've got a clip here. The thing about Robin Cook, and we'll, we'll explain the Derek Raymond thing after we listen to this, but the thing about Robin Cook is that he... And this was a Robin Cook. It was yeah, published as Robin, published Robin Cook. And it was, a, it was a very successful book, wasn't it? We should just clarify this for people listening. He was published as Robin Cook in the 1960s. He wrote almost nothing in the 1970s, and then he was published as Derek Raymond in the 1980s. Yes. And also he's writing genre when he comes back as Derek yeah, Raymond. Yeah, very much so, yeah. So, but we have a clip but here. But this is, that does have, I mean, Crust does have a kind of, it's villainy element. I mean, it is a it is Yeah, a, yeah, it's, it's a, a caper. It's a caper, it's a caper. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we, so we have a clip here of uh, Robin Cook talking about how he transmutes experience into art. So let's have a listen to that. The, the challenge for a writer of black novels, to, it, seems to, it seems to me, is both to have lived it and to survive it. 
because the, 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 the job of the writer is to survive and record. If you're dead, you can't record anything. You're living something which you're recording at the same time. You're always two people. You're the participator in the event. You suffer like everybody else. If you didn't, what you wrote would be no good. You suffer, and as you record your own agony. That's what you do as a writer. It's no better or worse than what other people do. They suffer, they agonise the same, same as uh, anybody does, same as I do. But they don't write it, that's all. <laughs> and, that's, I mean, and that's interesting, because that is, that is a quote, direct quote, that thing about if you're a writer... You're there, your job is to survive and record. That comes straight out of the pages of State of Denmark and, and Richard. Yeah. Mm. And what I, what I find in, what I found really interesting about reading the crust on its uppers, A State of Denmark, and He Died with His Eyes Open, which is the first of the Derek Raymond factory novels from the 1980s, is they are different from one another, but they are all clearly attempts of Robin Cook to write out his life mm. in yeah. different. Genres and yeah. formats and, vo- and voices, actually. So yeah. I think the main thing to say is, he's also a very acute listener of the, an observer of the world. All, all of these things are kind of really kind of. I mean, even in Christmas episode, you know, that bit where he describes a tie, the fact the tie has the right brand for the tie or whatever. And then similarly in the sort of Tuscan village, just the way that the weather is used and the landscape there. He listened a lot and observed immensely. And he describes himself as being that outsider thing. I mean, I mean there's an element of his outsiderness as well. Is the, though he had this, what he described as this, coming, having been born in a rich ghetto, his mother was American and of Jewish extraction. And I think that also gives a different kind of place within his own English class, the English class system. There's a bit here from a state of Denmark, which sort of comes out of nowhere. This is like 70 pages in. And so just a short paragraph that I'm going to read. And it shows you that he was very adept at shifting through different registers of writing. Mm. So we've just had, I think, quite a long passage of dialogue with uh, Magda, his partner, and uh, he's reminiscing about something. And then, and then he says, the next chapter begins like this. Last night, I had a slight stroke. Yeah, that's a great passage. A brilliant gold and silver ball exploded behind my eyes while I was asleep. It was veined with black like certain kinds of marble. It looked like a model of the brain done in metal. The light was so bright. I immediately sat bolt upright to find I was blind in my left eye and deaf in my left ear. I also had the most curious sensation in my left hand, not at all like pins and needles, but more as though electricity were being passed through a piece of lately sentient wood. I was unable to move this arm below the elbow. That was one way death could come to you then. No pain, but there was the shock, a loud snap in the brain while you slept. Because it was very hot, the bedroom window was wide open and I could see the stars. But when I shut my right eye, I could not see anything. And when I covered up my right ear, I was deaf. You know, it's recording, good, isn't it? It's just great yeah. writing. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's the thing for me. While I think it might not have completely succeeded in its own terms as a novel, there's so much cracking yeah. stuff in it. Definitely. I've also found the whole, the whole way he works into the narrative in Tuscany, the fascist, you know, the, yeah, the, their experience. Yeah, the, it's in the land. There's, there's an amazing yeah. sequence where they t- he gets mm-hmm. told the story of Arturo, who's mm. this 18-year-old who's 
you know, who's got a cross in the village. And the, the story of that, just a bit of a historical reporting, yeah. is so brilliantly done. He's already beginning all the way through that first bit of the book. You're getting dim, dull, difficult pre- presentiments of disaster the weather, yeah, the he, storms yep. gathering, you know, there's all this the kind of stroke, sense. The stroke. And the then the sense, stroke. The sense that things are slipping away. Mm. And then know. when Nemesis arrives, it's a fat, it, it kind yeah, of yeah. It's really annoying Jobsworth. In, but it's also a very, the very 70s element that it's a, a representative from the Inland Revenue. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the other, <laughs> the other strand of, this, of Raymond's own like, consciousness, and these I, things. I also, I mean, one of the things that I thought he did do brilliantly, and, and I mean, my issue with it is that you don't quite get the, he, he doesn't really. I mean, he sort of suggests how it happened that Jobling takes over. Mm, yeah. You don't quite really feel. It's a one remove. I mean, the, the, he, it's reported via other people as though you, the, the, there's a letter he receives from yeah. a writer friend of his who's, who has foolishly oh, gone yeah, back yeah. from from New York, That's and he writes right. in this very detailed letter explaining, um, you know. Uh, how the whole place has gone to kind of hell in a handcart. One of the one of the burdens, of course, for him is the idea that um, under this new regime, you can only drink five pints of beer a, a night. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the <laughs> limit, you know. No more, no less. You know. But it's worth saying as well. When I said I was uh, reading this book, *The State of Denmark* for Backlisted, the historian Alwyn Turner got in contact with me, and he said the thing about *The State of Denmark* is it's published in an era just as crossed on its uppers in the early 60s mm. you could see as a kind of post-absolute beginners but criminal caper thing very of its mm. era by the late 60s when um, Robin Cook's writing A State of Denmark th- this is a this is a, a, a mini genre in itself and he mm. gave me a list of British novels that I'll just read out the titles of because they're so evocative which imagine future Britain under yeah, sort of dystopian, dystopian fascist regime. The Lost Diaries of Albert Smith, a.k.a. After All This Is England, by Robert Muller from 1965. The Leader by Gillian Freeman, 1965, which has just been republished by yeah. Valancourt. The Man Who Held the Queen to Ransom and Sent Parliament Packing. <laughs> by, <laughs> Not a catchy by, title. By, Peter, <laughs> by, Seale, I like by Peter Van Greenaway, 1968. <laughs> And then 1970 saw Who Killed Enoch Powell wow. by Arthur Wise. And Elwin said to me, basically, quote, there was a lot of it about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which says an awful lot about how Britain felt about itself yeah. in yeah. the 1960s. Mm-hmm. When it has a Labour government uh, in the mid-60s, but it feels itself on the cusp because of passage of time, modern media. These are both mm. things that come into... A state of Denmark, and, 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 and these things were orange as well. The yeah. dystopian, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. again, yeah. A, a, there's a sort well, the of the film coming out in yeah. in, in, in 1971. So, so that thing against yeah. that context, I mean, I I guess the the thing that he does brilliantly is the the the, the change in sensibility through the book, which I think we can give without too many spoilers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Richard Watt is a, obviously not only is he a good journalist, he has spotted Jobling from mm. at an early stage and has publicly humiliated him on, on television. And this is the unforgivable crime that yep. comes back to haunt him. But, he, you know, you can tell he's, he's been working in the vineyard, you know, he's built this vineyard with his bare hands, 
Um, he's fit, he's lean, he's argumentative. One of the, the sequences in the book that I really like is the, the kind of this grotesque English couple who come, who are sort of bien Janet, Janet and Malcolm. Janet and Malcolm, Malcolm yeah. And the, they have a fantastic kind of, you know, square up for a fantastic ding-dong row. And I mean, he's basically basically just t- turns on them and tells them that what, what a pair of venal kind of, you know, weak <laughs> will. Because he's obviously, but you can tell he's, he's, he's terrified at what they're t- the way that they're just it's this slide into into mm. dictatorship that's really troubling to him I just a little bit here which I just thought was when he's reading them their character as it were he then goes on to say this is this to me is class this this is classic Roman this is the this is the beginning like you can feel in this book what he's I think his later books what he's a genius at doing like Jim Thompson is getting inside the mind mm. of psychopaths mm. and it's yeah. possible that he had you know, psychopathic psych- tendencies. Psychopathic event. tendencies himself. But this is this is a great paragraph. This is about him telling people that the, you know he can't help himself. I would give anything not to have these aposu. They kill me. They kill me too, by extension, reminding me of my own mortality. They force me to lead two lives: the outer one, extremely dishonest, as it must be in order to hide the inner one, which hides nothing. But truth means loneliness. And loneliness is a surer killer than even guilt or anxiety. So I buy off loneliness with lies that leave me exhausted, which is why I said I didn't get any rest and that things were always just beyond me. Moreover, dissection of my own mechanisms leaves me not at all angry at the pretenses of others, but just sad. Jobling is a liar as solid as lead, with not a chink of truth in him anywhere. Malcolm has his battles and his guilty petty thieving, and Janet her... Sex in inverted commas. It's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, and I, there's, there are definite that thing of that feeling of sadness. You know, he's, it's kind of like his own, he, he, he's so caught up in his own sort of inner drama. And actually, his, his kind of anger, mm. his, and, and this anger, what, what's brilliant is you watch this anger just just drain away with yeah, the second yeah. half of the book. I mean, it's mm. really disturbing. Well, that, that Travis is, and I, brilliantly done. Yeah. It's what Travis was saying about. The second half of the book, although it's set in the... He's basically transported back mm. from Italy to <coughs> England. And he's very fighty when he gets back. He's, yep. you know, he's kind of, you know, he's but really up But you see relatively little. You're not treated to sort of... It happened here. Uh, vistas of walking through London, seeing it with swastikas hanging from County Hall. It's all seen through... Uh, the narrator's eyes That's as right. he is transported yeah. back, basically dealing through with one of a train. through the window mm. of a train, dealing with one Shabby. thug Shabby. after yeah. another. Yeah. And I would argue that the, the what the book is about is the effect of. I don't think I don't think Robin Cook Derek Raymond was the sort of writer who who was interested in big external. Mm-hmm. descriptions or detail, but what mm. he's really good at in this book, and uh, uh, with all respect to you, John, uh, what I think is very good about the book, is it's an attempt to, within a genre, describe the effect of fascism on individual character. And I think on, on the, I, I would agree that on, in, those, in, that, in that regard, it does actually, it does work. I think the, the only issue I have is that you, it's... It feels a little that the, the fascist Britain and the transition to fa- fascist Britain, for reasons that I can completely understand, feels a little bit under a map. Just feels a little bit. Under yeah, a I agree. I, th- I think. Yeah, I think, I think that that's that's done 
I think that's a deliberate thing. I think the point, in it, which is the why I think in some respects it might have more the contemporary resonance thing is, that he himself, either Raymond or certainly the narrator, thinks that England is more susceptible to fascism than Italy at that time because the memory of what a fascist state is like is not there because it wasn't occupied. Yeah, yeah. So you get this, this the enormous, that, the Arturo, which you, you've just mentioned, John, that the story of the black shirt and how the power he's able to exert, and even the farmhouse. He, uh, he lives in, you know, has the, it's called the Abyssinian or something, yeah. isn't it? Because it was where people from there under Mussolini were, were, were kept. So there's, so, there's, so there's in a way there's a kind of extra layer of, of historical detail that he gives to the Italian setting, almost in a way to, as a lesson for England to think about what life under fascism is yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, in the second half, in a way, it's like it's the reason why England has gone fascist is because it wasn't occupied and because it didn't have a fascist dictator the first time around. And therefore, it doesn't know what fascism is. And I think this is, a, a, in a way, this is an element of, of Raymond's other books, where he has this whole thing about the reason why he hates all the sort of cosy crime writers like Agatha Christie and so on, is he says they have no understanding of the meaning of the word evil. And I think that's, yeah, I think yeah, this is an element what the book is about. It's in a sense, we should it's a moral element. We should talk a little bit about Derek Raymond's return as Derek yes, Raymond in the yeah, 1980s. Yeah. So he writes five novels, yeah. the factory novels, the first of which is called uh, He Died With His Eyes Open. And they are, if you've, if you've never read them, they are, we did, Ch- we did Raymond Chandler mm. on this podcast a while ago. And the reason he's called, he chose the name Derek Raymond is partly in tribute to the Raymond Chandler. and Raymond exactly. Chandler, yeah. right? Yeah. This is like sort of Chandler in Thatcherland. Yes. <laughs> Isn't it, Derek Raymond? Yeah, yeah. Reading them now, they are remarkably... Um, it's like evocative dark, of the darkest version of the Sweeney you can possibly. Yes, yes absolutely. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, absolutely. They, they, they're almost the. I mean, David Peace's kind of seventies, those Ripper novels. Well, very influential. Very influential on David Peace. Yeah. Kathy yeah. Unsworth, you mentioned Ian yeah. Rankin as well, has yeah. said. And and the fourth factory novel is called I Was Dora Suarez, yeah. and very famously was rejected by his publisher, uh, Dan Franklin, the great Dan Franklin, at uh, Sacker and Warburg, because it was just, you know, Dan famously said he read it and it made him feel ill. Well, Joyce Joyce Um, Carol Oates describes it as excruciatingly horrific, I think is a great description of it. And uh, someone who interviewed Raymond in the early 90s when he was when he was writing his, his memoir, conf- happily confessed to not having finished it because they were so kind of horrified. That, that Joyce Carol Oates, there's a brilliant quote here about these books from Joyce Carol Oates. She says, Raymond's milieu is the chill of Thatcher-era London and his atmosphere is an unrelenting existentialist noir, as if the most brutal of crime fictions had been recast by Sartre, Camus or Ionesco <laughs> while retaining something of the intimate wise guy tone of Chandler and Hammett. Sentences in the factory novels are likely to be short, blunt, fevered. Quote, every day you amass knowledge in a frantic race against death that death must win. I mean, that's sort of of a piece, isn't it, with the, with the State of Denmark stuff mm. that we were, they were reading. The job of the writer is to get it down. Yeah. I'm not the world's expert on, on noir, but I love those. I haven't read Dora, Dora Suarez. But I read, um, you, you were a bookseller at the same time. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, he was a sensation, a sort of cult sensation. Yes, well, I really associate... Among, among yeah. booksellers, yeah. because it was 
this was at the time, I guess, when Maxim Jakubowski was was, was, right. was also bringing a lot of American, a lot of the, the American crime list that there was the Serpent's Tail were doing their their crime list. Yeah, there yeah. was no exit press. There was a sudden interest in Jim Thompson. A, a lot of great crime writers were suddenly becoming. Mm. Read for the first well, time we, and treat and, and, and take tra- it seriously. And I, think, I think that's the main and, thing. And, 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 and Raymond was our guy. We that we could say, Jim Tom, you I, you know, you yeah, raised yeah. Jim Thompson, I raise you, well, Derek we, Raymond. We did an event at Waterstones and Earls Court for the paperback of I Was Dora Suarez. <laughs> and I those were the days. I can remember almost nothing about it <laughs> because and I actually asked people that I used to work with this week. You know, did we do an event? Did we, what, I've got a memory that we did. And what they reminded me was, yes, we did an event. Derek was very personable. Uh, he had on his famous beret, which she was saying. Yeah. It, 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 you can go and visit it in the French house uh, in Dean Street. So <laughs> it, it, it's on a, on a hook uh, above the bar, gathering, gathering a little dust, actually, the last time. Much, and there's also some nice characters. I can't remember much about this event, hardly yeah. because much drink was taken. But what I remember, I just have a mental picture of Derek sitting there with a glass of wine in one hand and a fag in the other, yeah. smoking on the shop floor, which even in and talking 1992 was forbidden. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the voice, which you heard a bit of on the table, yeah, yeah. that voice was something mm. else, wasn't it? This sort of posh, strangulated, you felt that it nicotine, red wine kind of... You know, it's the voice per- of Soho, isn't per- it? I mean, it really yeah, is. Yeah, long, exactly and that. he was... I just remember I just rem- associate him and when I first lived in London and he made a record of uh, a readings of Dora Suarez with a group called Gallon Drunk doing the, the backing and I just I associate him totally with yes. going to see Gallon Drunk and yeah. you know yep. not remembering certain events after <laughs> they had happened so amnesia uh, really is what you're saying yeah, and, and a certain <laughs> kind of amnesia I mean, yeah. it, it, so when did you when so did you it, was, it, was, it would have been the same sort of time I guess it would have been early 90s late, late 80s early 90s At the time I remember meeting him was at one of the classic Jonathan Meads parties where you know there was Chris Pettit there was <laughs> Gordon Byrne there, yeah. there was there was there was Robin Cook you know there yeah, was Meads yeah. there was a whole it, it was that kind of it, it was that kind of bit of London, and they, I mean, all of those writers are, t- are terrific, uh, and they're all also terrific recorders. But also that era—that's really interesting. That era that we because we've come, you know, we talked about David Litvinoff a while uh, a moment ago. Derek Raymond is in the nineteen ninety one film The Cardinal and the Corpse, yeah, which made by Ian Sinclair and Chris Pettit, Pettit yeah. which has Emmanuel Litvinoff. It's like that era. It's a really powerful that era now. I think that late eighties, early nineties. <laughs> Era of writers, I think, I think London it was, writers. Yeah, it was a bit of a gold, it was a bit of a golden age. That it was also that period. I think for, you know, obviously, the, the older generation had known about Patrick Hamilton, but for a lot of us who were sort of younger, we were starting to read yeah. novels about London and uh, London life that were this, that was that weren't kind of you know Mimsy Hampstead you know mm. m- middle class. Or also, seek, also seeking back into the past to find some voices which are also represented that version of London as well. I think it's a great period. I think for pre-internet or sort of internet was just about about but of rediscovery and people like Kathy particularly uh, and the music press actually I mean uh, Raymond yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. got lots of uh, write-ups and interviews and stuff within the, within the weekly 
um, music press because and also bands themselves like like Gallon Drunk very suave always wore you know suits or and ties it looks like fifties craze kind of aesthetic about their, their 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 fashion sense so that idea of the you know that rediscovering of some of those voices and and and, and plundering them for a kind of contemporary resource I think was a huge thing I mean people like I mean Jay Carnot's The Long Firm yeah, for example yeah, those yeah. kind of novels owe a huge debt to Raymond I mean I, I'm sure you know, he'd be happy enough to to admit that. So Robin Cook, the author, writes in the 1960s. In the 70s, he almost writes nothing and works as a minicab driver. Yeah. Well, he, yeah. And then, and then yeah. in the 80s, he comes back as Derek Raymond <laughs> yep. and, and has like this glorious 10-year run Definitely. before he dies, yeah. right? There's this brilliant quote from him <laughs> saying, um, I've watched people like Kingsley Amis struggling to get on the up escalator while I had the down escalator all to myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. But, but he, he understood. He strikes me as somebody mm. who towards the end of his career, understood what he was good at, yep. what his niche was, and who he spoke for. Definitely. You know, himself, but yeah. also that I mean, kind he, of... He, I mean, he has, a, he has a great description. He describes about his early novels, uh, because, again, they are... They're within the they're in, they're within his class structure, in a sense. That, you know, they are public schoolboys who are slumming it with... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, with gangsters in Soho, though, though those those worlds are remarkably close, the same degree of kind of nepotism, odd slang, uh, particular forms of schools, property, gambling, etc. All those things quite kind of knit together quite neatly. But he just says, you know, uh, he he f- he felt that his early no- early novels got rather rejected because he says uh, they were drawing undue attention in the drawing room to what should have been hidden under the drawing room carpet. <laughs> so it's that idea in a way that. Everyone knew that you know there was a big scam going on, but um, that it was impolite to say so, and, and and he drew attention to that within within his novels. We're going to wrap up in a minute, but I would say you know <laughs> we started this podcast, didn't we? Saying it's about state of Denmark, and uh, you know if you're interested in seeing somebody imagining what Britain might be like under that type of regime, it's worth reading. But actually, you know what? If you want to read the best of Derek Raymond, if you haven't read Derek Raymond, well, what are we saying? Are we saying the factory novels are where you where you go? I probably would say so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. John, I think, do you think? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I mean, I, what I would say though is, if you are interested in dystopias, and you're interested in, I mean, I I do think this is an interesting moment to read this book. I mean, I was just looking at a piece in the New York Times this week, which really reminded me that this idea that our liberties are not taken from us by yeah. you know, mm. jackboots. There's a great passage in here where he says that jobbling has succeeded in England right across the board and almost without violence, overt violence at any rate. The further on in a series that a particular revolution occurs, the neater the job the aspirant dictator makes of it. He has so many examples to draw on. By comparison, Hitler's rise to power was a messy, bungled, dreadfully <laughs> amateurish affair, while Mussolini was a comic opera, as long as you lived abroad. And I think there's this thing, but when you're getting these kind of amazing things coming through, that the support for, that the, there are fewer and fewer people now who think a liberal democracy is, is an essential mm. thing mm. Uh, within the West. And even, even among young people, you know, that it's just this sort of gradually, we're getting a little bit bored with this idea and it's kind of run yeah. and everybody's corrupt. That you kind of, that, that actually liberties leak 
away yep. from people. Yeah. It's not that they just that they, they're taken at gunpoint. It's that they just disappear and they don't come back. And particularly in that sequence in the novel where Janet and Malcolm are, are, desc- are describing how the newspapers have changed, yeah. and and, so, and it's just very oh, casual. And they've saying, taken and, this on trust, saying, you know, saying that you know, well, it's great now. The fashion coverage is brilliant, and they've expanded all the <laughs> yeah. they've expanded yeah. all the lifestyle stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so it's but what about you know, Rick Watts saying? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, there there's are. This, there's this little short passage just here from. Um, the narrate, one of the narrator's friends who's got a letter through to him in Italy. His friend says, I made a serious, possibly fatal error in ever returning to London from New York. You know me, Richard. I get something right in a book only to get the same thing wrong when it comes to real life. After being in the States for eight months, I couldn't believe that things had gone so wrong in England and so quickly as people, papers and television reports received through Scotland and Wales said they had. And now I'm paying the penalty for my own stupidity. You remember the stories we used to read in the old days about Iron Curtain nationals who had lived in the West sufficiently long that they felt it must be safe to go home, at least just for a visit to see family, etc., and never got out again? Well, I think that's what happened to me. It's that thing you're talking about, John, about the sense of it. It could, you know, the famous phrase, it could happen here, it couldn't happen here. Mm. Well, I think what he's trying to do, and like I say, if he doesn't quite succeed, it's because it's bloody difficult to do, Mm. you know, it's tough to to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, but, <laughs> um, but what he what he's trying to do is to, is is as you say, it's the sort of the effect that that that, that fascism and repression has on the on the on the on the spirit on the inner on the inner. I mean, an interesting, interesting, and I think he does succeed in doing that. I think that the, the the fact that we have difficulty imagining how our stable democracy would descend into mm. into authoritarian it's our own fascism. Complacency, isn't it? That's so, so. kind of maybe yeah. you know. Maybe that's my problem rather than yep. Derek Raymond's problem. I, I feel a bit more up on that than I was this time, <laughs> than I was this time last year, unfortunately. I was saying... And on that happy note. On that happy note, everyone. Um, so, we're, but I think we're basically giving it a big thumbs up. And, and we also, are I mean, we're certainly up. giving Derek Raymond, he's a kind of iconic, important English writer. You know what? I really appreciate it. I'm so pleased yeah. you chose this, Travis, because when it came down to it, he's one of those people that I've been meaning for years totally. to, to investigate properly. Yeah. And actually, these were, these were you know... If you, it, I've been tag-teaming these books with books by our next author on Backlisted, who I won't, <laughs> I won't talk about, but it's been quite a surreal double-hander. Uh, you found that job. Me too, yeah. yeah. yeah it's uh, very strange. Surreal to the point of actual kind of madness. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I have to say, the, the, my dreams have been particularly... Uh, Rowan, yeah. by the way, is very good on dreams. My dreams have been mm. particularly odd. So, um, <laughs> not weed. Seems, not weed. As they say. <laughs> past the not weed. As good a point as any... Yes, yeah. past yeah. the not weed. Is any point to stop? So we should say thank you to Travis, thank to you our Travis. producer, Matt Hall. And once again, thank you to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Backlisted Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Backlisted Pod, and on our Unbound page at the Unbound site at unbound.com forward slash Backlisted. And if you use iTunes to listen to Backlisted, we will be pathetically grateful, <laughs> as we say each week, if you could rate us or even leave a review. Um, <laughs> thank you for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. And a, hey, Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs>
you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listed, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.